0: Um, <clears throat> as we begin today, uh, diving into week two uh, of family month, uh, I was thinking this week, like if, if you stop and think about it, it it's kind of obvious that you and I learn more about relationships from the home that we grew up in than from anyone else or anything else or any place else ever in our life. From our, every book, seminar, anything you learn, anything you can do, the truth is, is the most influential Uh, experience in your life when it comes to your formation of how you behave in relationships comes from the home that you grew up in. It's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of all of us. And just imagine for a second, going back to the home that you grew up in, kind of picture it in your head, you know, and you go up to the attic. And if you didn't have an attic, maybe there's a spare bedroom in, you know, your fictitious home that you grew up in. Uh, and, And you go into the room and you look around and you see all of this stuff from your childhood. And it brings back all of this flood of memories. Maybe for you as a trophy or a specific toy or dollhouse or a baseball glove or a scout's uniform. And, and, And in and amidst all the other stuff over in the corner, there's a trunk that you've never seen before. And on the front of that trunk is a sign and the sign has your name engraved on it in big, bold letters. And underneath your name, it says relationship curriculum. So you're a little curious. So you Crack open the trunk, and inside the trunk is just a whole bunch of these file folders for the courses that you took up, you know, that you took growing up as a kid in your family about relationships. And there's probably some pretty good stuff in there. So you pull the first one, and it says... How to stand up for yourself, and you thumb through it, and you flash back to different experiences and different moments in your childhood. Maybe an experience you had with a sibling, or something that your dad kind of talked to you about, or your mom pulled you to the side and this thing that she's trying to, you know, impart to you some wisdom or confidence. Uh, so you grab another one, and, and it's it's for a course that you took called Forgiveness One Hundred and One, and you have all these experiences and and and, and uh, memories that come from your family. But then there's also some not so helpful courses that you took from your family that are in there as well. Like you glance down and, and the files that sort of fallen open and maybe for you and your family, one of them is called feelings that you know we don't talk about in this family. Or, or there's another folder for a course that you took that's called advanced blame shifting and how to do it. And you got really good at that. And that one's always fun when you have that kind of course in your family. But the truth is so much of what we learn about ourselves So much about what we learn about relationships, it comes from our family. That's why we devote an entire month every year. We talk about families kind of all the time, but October is the one month that we devote the whole month to just kind of talking about family because family is the university that we all attend to learn about relationships for better or for worse. The home you grew up in profoundly shapes the relational landscape of your life pretty much for your whole life because it's where you learned how to do relationships. in in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, there's this place where this guy Solomon was writing about this. And he, he wrote these words in Proverbs chapter 24, verse three. He says, homes are built on the foundation of wisdom and understanding. Where there is knowledge, the rooms are filled with valuable and beautiful things. And he's not talking about the physical structures that we build and live in. He's talking about our families, about our relationships, about our marriages, about our kids, about our legacies. And that is the heart of family month, that together we would all learn to build bigger, better, stronger, healthier families and homes, that the rooms of your home would be filled with beautiful and valuable things because that's what we all want, right? And the truth is like, we obviously don't all have the same experience much less the same personalities. We don't even all share the same brain chemistry that varies so much from person to person. And so our perspectives and our perceptions and the internal conversations that are going on about ourselves and about other people and about our experiences and what's happening, they don't all sound the same. Those conversations don't all sound the same for all of us. And so we almost never arrive at the same conclusions. I mean, you think about it, two people can experience the exact same thing and come away with very different perspectives on what actually happened. I have a fantastic boss, but one morning, a couple of years ago, a few years back, I was driving in from where we lived. I was driving into our office in Southern California, and it's only 11 miles, but it only took me 65 minutes to get there, to to go that 11 miles. Um, And so I was driving in my car and um, I noticed that I had missed a call from him and he had left me a voicemail, which was really kind of strange because he doesn't call me all that often. We text and we email and we talk a lot, but he hardly ever calls. And so when I played the message, he said, hey, Randy, call me right away. There's something that you and I need to talk about. And I was like, I mean, that kind of sounds serious. And so something strange happened in that moment when I heard that because I've had some kind of bad workplace experiences and, and so my workplace and relational sort of PTSD kicked in and, and all these crazy thoughts started running through my head as I listened to his voicemail. So I started thinking like, like, why does he want to talk to me? Like, and why is it so urgent? What the heck did I do? I mean, he sounded up, was he upset? I mean, he sounded upset. I know things aren't going that great right now, but I mean, they aren't that bad. And why, why am I being singled out? And, Wait, am I about to get fired? Like, what is happening right now? Is he calling to tell me like, you know, why, why is he telling me to call him right away? I just don't, wh- what's going on? What? And then, then I, you know, and then part of like that passive aggressive part of me kicked in. And I was just like, what if I just pretend like I didn't hear the voicemail? What if I just don't call him back? What would happen then? Eventually, like through all of that craziness, I was like, okay, you're being a psycho. Like, calm down, call your boss. And so I called him and he picked up and he was like, hey, Randy, I got you on speaker. We're in a staff meeting. And I was trying to tell these guys that hilarious story that you told me last week. And I couldn't remember all the details and I keep screwing it up. And I, you know, we all needed a laugh. Could you, you gotta tell that story. And I was like, oh my God, I thought I was getting fired. And then everybody started dying laughing. And I was like, don't ever call me and tell me you need to talk to me right away. Um, I was like, oh God, All right. And I was like, why the urgency? He's like, oh, our meeting's really short. I just need you to tell him before we're all done. And I was like, all right, well, don't ever do that again. But have you ever done that? where you like assumed the worst only to find out you like couldn't have been more wrong? Whether it was a meeting at work or something a friend or a family member did or something that they said. And so you like jumped to all kinds of conclusions. You took what they said or did and you just started running with it. And then you found out later, like you were way off. There wasn't some nefarious plot to do you in. They weren't scheming against you. Like, like, isn't it true that many times we don't get upset so much at what someone is doing as much as why we think we're, they're doing it. It's like, oh, you're just doing that to hurt me. You're just doing that to get back at me. You're just doing that because you're being petty. Like, have you ever found yourself having an entire conversation with yourself about what's going on while it's still going on? And if you're like me, sometimes that internal conversation is so loud in your head that you actually lose track of the actual conversation that's happening in real time with real people in real life right in front of you. And the crazy part of all of it is that we don't have to try to do this, right? It just sort of happens. And we do it in part because we're not always wrong. We have been hurt before. Someone has betrayed us before. We have had a boss that played to our worst fears. We have been around people whose motives were less than pure. See, oftentimes, part of the reason we're guarded right now is because of what happened back then. but here's the problem when, when that happens when we kind of live in that place. We get sucked into this game where we're constantly trying to read people's minds and assuming their motives and trying to predict what they're really up to and why. And we're just really, really bad at it. But we do it so that we can be prepared. Last, week, last year, I read this great book by Malcolm Gladwell. And, uh, and the whole point of the book is how much human beings try to predict what other people are gonna do and why they're, why they're doing it um, and how we all think we're pretty good at it. I'm great at reading people, but the whole point of the book is how bad we all are. Even the ones of us that are the best at it. See, the truth is, is like there's all kinds of stuff that runs through our head, but we're all different. We all learned from, we all learned completely different things from completely different circumstances about relationships and about families, and and, and maybe you can relate to some of this, but. I think if we kind of went around the route, I think we would find there's kind of two camps that we sort of fall into. Some of us think that everything is a big deal and that everything is always about us. You ever met somebody like that? You ever known someone like that? Ever been someone like that? And then there's other, others of us that think that nothing is a big deal and nothing is ever about us. And you're just like, yeah, actually that is about you. Like that is a big deal. And if you're not sure which one you're in, Just ask your family. Like they'll tell you which one you are. Like, yeah, you're the person that thinks everything's about you. See, most of the time, it's what we tell ourselves about what's happening that affects us way more than what is actually happening. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That story that's constantly going in your head? but here's the deal. We can actually get better. We can actually shut that off. We can actually begin to change that story. We can learn to grow and get better and be healthier. So why not have a month where we come together and work on it and work at it together? Why not get better and heal and learn and grow and invest in this university that our kids are growing up in about what relationships are like? Because the truth is, and you know this, if if we're unhealthy, our relationships are gonna be unhealthy. If, if we're that person that's just, our life is full of drama, our relationships will be full of drama. If we're codependent, our relationships are going to be codependent. If we're loving and truthful, our relationships will be as well. See, the reality is our relationships will only be as healthy as we are. And, and that's actually good news because you're not stuck. You're not doomed. You're not you know, the story's not finished, whatever the university was that you grew up in, whatever the courses you took in your family, and your home growing up, like you can actually learn and get better and grow and you can shift and, and have your experience and your family and your story and your legacy and your kids be completely different. So one of Jesus's disciples, his name was Peter, and he, he wasn't actually just one of the disciples. He was one of Jesus's closest friend. So Jesus had 12 disciples and they were you know, kind of this big group. And then he had this smaller group of just three of Peter, James, and John. And when it comes to Peter, when you look into the scriptures, there are more stories in the scriptures in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of interaction between Jesus and Peter than pretty much Jesus and anyone else. And so this morning, I want to take you to three very different scenes from their relationship all of which happen in the scriptures in the span of just a handful of verses because they happen one right after the other. And I think as we're going through like all all these dynamics, we can actually relate to, but when we step back, we can actually learn a lot from these experiences and the relationship between Jesus and Peter. So the first one is found in Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. Uh, It says this, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, "Some say John the Baptist; others say Elijah; and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." Now, before we read the last couple of verses, um, I I, want to give you a little bit of context because um, about this because it's super cool and it kind of has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's just too cool not to share with you. So. They're walking up, Jesus and his disciples are walking up to this city. They're on the outskirts of the city called Caesarea Philippi. So in ancient Rome, the most famous Roman ruler of all time, Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar died, upon his death, the Roman empire declared and decreed that he was a god and he was to be treated as and regarded as a god. Okay. So while he was still alive, he had a great nephew, named Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius, his dad died. And so Julius Caesar kind of took him under his wing, even though he was his great uncle. And as Gaius Octavius grew up, he got really close to his uncle. And upon his death, upon Julius Caesar's death, he adopted, right before he died, he adopted Gaius Octavius and was like, this is my son, this is my heir. He's the one that's gonna carry forth my legacy. And so in a very short period of time, Gaius Octavius actually became the very first emperor of Rome and his name was changed to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus might sound familiar to you. The reason why most of us know his name is because he appears right smack dab in the middle of the Christmas story. And so every year when we get through it, and we're gonna actually hear a lot about him when we, in the next couple of months, because in Luke chapter two, it begins with a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Because that's one of the first things he did when he became emperor. And so after he became emperor, one of his little minion kings that was ruling a certain section of his kingdom for him, his name was Philip II, Philip decided he he really wanted to impress Caesar Augustus and he wanted to honor the new Caesar. He wanted to honor the emperor. And so he decided to name a city after him. And so he named the city. He took the Caesar's name and he took his name and he put it together and he named the city Caesarea Philippi. And so here is Jesus walking with his disciples up to a city, Caesarea Philippi, which is named for the son of a God. And Jesus says, hey guys, who do you think I am? I don't think it was an accident that Jesus was like, we're going into the city. Everybody knows this this city is named for the son of God, for the son of Julius Caesar. Who do you guys think I am? And they go back and forth. You're probably, a, you know, some people say you're a prophet. Maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And he's like, well, yeah, okay. What do, you, what do you guys think? And Peter says, no, 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 you're the Messiah. You're not the son of a God. You're the son of the one and only, the one true living God. What, a, what an incredibly profound moment. And Jesus replied, this is where we'll pick it back up in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates or the powers or the forces of Hades, hell will not overcome it. And so as they walk up to this city, Jesus asks his question, Peter gives his answer. And he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this was such a powerful and surreal moment. So much so that Jesus is like, you didn't get that from anybody. You didn't hear that from somebody else. You got that directly from God. You didn't hear that in conversation. You heard that. That was a direct download from somebody higher, somebody bigger. That was a direct conversation that God was having with you. And he says, you're Peter. You're a rock. And the truth that you just spoke about me, that's gonna be with this whole thing that we're building. That's what it gets... That's what it's all gonna be built on is that profession that I am the Messiah, that I'm the son of the living God. Now, all of that is this incredibly important moment in the story of Jesus, both spiritually and theologically and everything that we believe. But I want you to step back for a minute and let's set all that to the side and let's just look at this experience, this moment between Jesus and Peter and his disciples. And let's just look at it from a human perspective, from a relationship perspective. I mean, think about how great it would have felt for Peter to have Jesus look at him and say that to him and say that about him. I mean, you're talking about a group of guys and we know from all these other stories in the gospels that these guys were constantly trying to jockey for position about who was Jesus's favorite and what's the pecking order and all that stuff. So you have a group of guys and in the middle of that, in front of all of those other guys, in front of all of his peers, in front of all the other disciples, he says, you're Peter, you're the rock, you got it right. I mean, talk about bragging rights. I mean, don't you know, like every time they got together, the other guys were like, hey, what's up, Peter? And he's like, you know what, just call me the rock. And then he gives them the people's eyebrow, just like that. And they're like, dude, why do you have your shirt off? (laughs) Why are you so sweaty? Like, what's going on? But, but, the truth is like, we all want affirmation, right? Especially from those that we're close to or people who we love and respect the most. And that kind of validation coming from Jesus, it would have been absolutely life-changing because isn't it true that certain words from certain people are just more impactful because of who they are and who they are to us. Like, like we all have people in our lives whose words just weigh more and land differently than if those same things were said by somebody else, both good and bad. I mean, you know, those people that can hurt you hurt worse than, and somebody else can say that same, same exact thing. It doesn't really phase you. So this moment between Jesus and Peter, like aren't these, like these are the, like, the best moments in relationships, right? Where, where things are clicking, where we're on the same page, where the love is flowing. We can feel seen, we, you know, we feel seen and heard and validated and affirmed. And those are the moments where we're just like, yes. Like it's you and me, like, yes. Like we wish we could just sort of stay in those really positive, incredible moments and just sort of live there. But that's not how real relationships work, right? I mean, in fact, if you're in a relationship that's all sunshine, that's called artificial harmony. And somebody's not being honest. Somebody's not telling you the truth at some point. And so for Peter... And for Jesus, things change pretty quickly. So just a few verses later, this is what happens in Matthew 16, 21. So from then on, from that experience on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly what it was, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the law. And he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said to you, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Okay. So in the previous story, like we said, Peter makes this declaration about Jesus being the son of God. And so now we're starting to, to see that the disciples are starting, beginning to understand who he is. Up until this moment, nobody had said that out loud. There were all these whispers and everybody, could he be the Messiah? Is he the one? Are we, you know, is this the guy? Like, is he, what kind of prophet is this? But this is the first time where somebody said out loud, you're the guy, you're the one that all of human history has been pointing towards. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah that's been prophesied about. You were the one to come. And and so they're all starting to understand it and believe it. And so that's why Jesus now begins to explain to them, okay, now that you get that, let me start telling you why I came. And so he starts laying out for them what's gonna happen, what he came to do, which is to lay down his life for humanity. And now they're all like shocked and confused and they start kind of freaking out. And and I just kind of imagine Peter stepping up in that moment and going, look guys, I got this. Let me handle it. So he pulls Jesus to the side and he's like, look, Jesus, it's me, the rock. I don't know if you remember or not, just a few minutes ago, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm the man. I'm kind of a big deal. Look, I, I'm not sure where all that suffering and dying stuff is coming from. I mean, they, you just need to knock that off. Like the guys are getting a little, it's freaking everybody out. So can you just stop? Talking about that, like that ain't gonna happen. And Jesus, who just a few minutes ago or a little while ago, we actually don't know how much time has passed between these two, even though they're like sandwiched together. But Jesus, who had just said to Peter, Peter, you're the rock. He now looks at him and says, get away from me, Satan. I mean, talk about like a complete reversal. Talk about like a relational smackdown. It's not a good moment in your relationship when the person calls you Satan, okay? That is a downgrade in nicknames. By the way, Jesus, he actually isn't calling Peter the literal prince of darkness. He was saying like, look, what you're doing right now, not only is it not helpful, it's hurtful and destructive. You have no idea what is happening? You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea the full story. You have no idea what I'm dealing with, what I'm facing. And he's going, Satan is real. Like you have a real spiritual enemy, and he's doing everything he can to pull me away from my mission and my purpose because he knows what's at stake. So that's his whole goal. That's everything he's working for. And you may not be doing it on purpose right now, and you may not even be aware of all that's going on, but I can just tell you you're helping him. So get away from me, Satan. And he says, you're seeing things from a very limited perspective which doesn't make you a bad person, but there's more going on than you can possibly see or understand. Isn't it crazy how quickly things can change in your relationship? Like, I mean, one minute things are great and we're connected and you're their rock. And then boom, something happens or somebody says something and all of a sudden things go sideways and now you are Satan. Words get exchanged and things are tense and emotions run high and you're in the same room or maybe even laying in the same bed, but there's a universe between you. And sometimes we don't even know how or why. We're not even sure how it happened. How did we end up here? See, the ability to navigate conflict is the most important skill that you will need in your relationships, your relational world for your whole life. Why? Because conflict is inevitable. Problems, confrontation, conflict is going to happen. See, if Jesus who was 100% God and he was 100% human, but he was completely perfect and he was 100% mental uh, mentally and emotionally healthy unlike us, he had no baggage. If Jesus dealt with that in his closest relationships, man, like you and I are going to have to deal with that. So the question becomes, how do, we, how do you respond? How do we handle it? And here's what I think is interesting. We're not given a lot of information, um, but Peter, who, if you just kind of read through his story, Peter's a very emotional guy, but in this story, he doesn't seem to get rattled by this moment. He doesn't seem to get rattled by this con- con- uh, confrontation. He doesn't jump to conclusions or make assumptions or just completely offended. He's not like, you know what? Fine. You know what? I quit. You you can't talk to me like that, Jesus. I was just trying to help you and you're gonna call me Satan? I mean, I know you're the son of God and all, but who do you think you are? Which is what we do, right? Like, we make assumptions, we get offended, we get angry, we jump to conclusions, we make all kinds of leaps in log- logic and start seeing things, you know, everything through the lens of our offense and then confirmation bias kicks in and what we already think, we start searching for it, and we find all this data and proof that what we thought and what they did and this is why and to build our case. And we send angry texts and make passive aggressive posts and the truth is like, and this is really hard to hear and to say and feel no matter where you are. But unhealthy and insecure people, when we're unhealthy and insecure, we can find offense in almost anything someone else says or does. And that's hard to swallow because when I look at my own life and I look at my own experiences, I look at my own offenses, if I follow those offenses through, it almost always says way, way, way more about me And it does about them and what they said and what they did. But as we get healthy and as we heal and we offload some of our baggage and we get better, right? And we grow stronger. We begin to understand that there's always more going on. There's always more to the story. There's always something that we're not seeing. In Peter's case, Jesus told him that he was limited in his perspective, that he couldn't see what God sees, right? He didn't have God's perspective. Now, the good news for us in our relationships is like, you don't actually have to see from God's perspective. You can just start with trying to see the situation from their perspective. Now, I I don't know, like for you, when I read this story, I think it, it had to hurt. Like, it's amazing that we don't have Peter blowing up because that had to sting, Right? And if the other disciples are around, if it's like any other group of guys I've been around, once Jesus walked away, they're like, what's up, Rock? I mean, Satan, you know? And then everybody's like. (laughs) Because that's just the way guys are. We're jerks to each other. But it had to sting hearing those words come out of Jesus' mouth. But as far as we know, Peter didn't get offended. He didn't flip out. He didn't storm off. See, here's the thing. All of our relationships, have a constant cycle uh, of what, what's called rupture and repair, right? There, there are things that happen in every relationship that cause hurt and anger, where there's a break in connection. There's a rupture, there's a riff in the relationship. And sometimes it's because of something that actually happened, something that was actually said. We hurt them, or they hurt us, or they said something, we did something. Other times, it's, it's not what was done that causes that rupture. It's the story that we told ourselves or they were telling themselves in their head about what what we did and why we did it. See, either way, that rupture happens. The problem is in a lot of our relationships, that's where we get stuck because we just kind of sit in it. We start to rehearse and replay the thing that was said or the thing that was done. And then we blame them and we rally people to our side and we talk to everybody else about the situation except for them. But the healthier we are, the healthier the relationship, the more quickly we move from that rupture to begin to repair. So we confront the situation. We attack the problem, not the person. And through love and empathy and warmth and forgiveness and acceptance and curiosity and maybe even a little playfulness, we begin to repair and heal that rift. See, here's the thing, and, and you already intuitively know this the health of every of any relationship it's not determined by how few ruptures occur right because it it, like it's not a badge of honor like oh we never fight and i'm like oh you will see it's not health the health of our relationships isn't about how few ruptures occur but it's how quickly and completely a repair is made when they actually happen and so watch what, watch what Jesus does with Peter. So in the immediate verses, Matthew 17, verse one, right after he just calls him Satan, six days later, it says, Matthew 17, verse one, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up high on a mountain to be alone. <clears throat> that seems like a completely innocuous statement but given everything that just proceeded before it and given what we know, especially about Peter and about relationships, can you imagine how huge this is? It's as if Jesus is saying, everything's good, Peter. Like, so right after Jesus tells Peter, like, get away from me. Don't, don't be like that around me. Don't say that. Like, I need you to get away from me because what you're doing is not helping me. Right after that rupture, Jesus invites Peter back into and back close to him to repair that rift. This this would have been a huge moment of things are, things haven't changed, Peter. I still love you. You're still, we're still close. And if you know, like the the reason Jesus took them up on the mountain, what happens in the next couple of verses is one of the most incredible experiences anybody ever had in one of the most incredible moments that that happened with jesus because jesus is actually transfigured on the mountain like he literally the fullness of who he is as god gets expressed right in front of peter james and john and they fall on their faces and moses and elijah actually appear and they're talking with jesus and peter says something stupid and so god like rumbles and speaks audibly from heaven And they're just terrified. It's this incredible moment that three people got to experience, and and Peter was there. Now, maybe for you, all of this is just like, yeah, that's what happens. There's rupture, repair. Yeah, I didn't think about it in those words, but of course, yeah. Or maybe for you, you're just like, oh, my gosh, there's so much tension. Like, I don't know. Maybe for you in the home you grew up in, like, if there was a rupture, you just kind of got shut out. You just kind of got pushed to the side or they withdrew completely and everybody just sort of got over and they just sort of pretended like we're just, that didn't happen. That blow up, that thing that was said or done or that hurt, those, those feelings were just not, there's not gonna, I was um. I was on staff uh, at a church and I was at a prayer meeting and uh, there, it was a bigger church. I was a youth pastor and it was a 6 a.m. prayer meeting cause um, pastors hate sleep for some reason. I'm like, can we pray at like nine? So we got up and we're, at, we're finishing, we're standing around praying and the guy who was the worship leader comes in and him and the children's pastor, like nobody knows what's going on, but they get in this giant cuss out fight, yelling and screaming and throwing this humongous water bottle and like everybody's like, whoa. And I was like, this is the coolest church I've ever been a part of. Um, and like, this was like right before cell phones. And so I like ran over to the closet cause there was a phone in the closet and I called Hansi and I was like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what's just happening. And I started telling her, like, I'm looking out there and I'm like, uh-huh. Yep. And now he's yelling at him. Dude, he just threw the thing. You know, I was like telling her that everything, um, but what happened was like, it, it's not just families that can be dysfunctional. We went to a staff meeting later. Like when it was done, like one guy stormed off and, and one of the other pastors was like, all right, well, who's hungry. And I was like, what? And then we went to breakfast and then we came back and we went into the staff meeting and the guy who did all the yelling and the throwing of stuff, he came in and we sat down and I was just like, are we not going to talk about this or, and he's just like, oh yeah, you guys know that thing that happened earlier. You guys know how I am. And that was all that was ever said. And I was like, all right, this is really, really dysfunctional. See, here's the thing. When that happens, like when what happens is when a rupture occurs without repair, Walls get built up, love slowly turns to resentment, and that relationship will crumble, right? Because it undermines trust, it undermines connection. And if that was your experience in your family, every single time there's a rupture in a relationship, it can feel like the end of that relationship. And there's this panic, right? But if you have a healthy cycle of rupture, then repair, rupture, then repair, rupture, then repair, you actually start to learn like, oh, you don't have to be afraid of conflict. You don't have to be afraid of confrontation. You don't have to run away every time things get tense or challenging. And just like we see with Jesus and Peter, when we learn to handle conflict correctly, it deepens our relationship instead of damaging or even destroying it. So years after these moments of all these experiences that we just read about Jesus and Peter, Peter wrote these words in one of his letters in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 and 9. He says, "And all of you should be of one mind, Sympathize with each other. Oh, you're sounding kind of wise here, Peter. Love each other like family, like brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. And so Peter's writing this letter, and he's like, "Okay, you guys, look, love each other like family. Don't treat them as bad as like you think they are, because." They're probably not as bad as you think they are. Instead, treat them as good as you are. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. No, better yet, treat them as good as Jesus is. Stop taking everything so personally. Give somebody the benefit of the doubt because it's probably not personal. And you're going to have ruptures in your relationships because that's inevitable. But when they happen, when somebody's evil to you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody insults you, don't return that to them. Make a repair. Like, I wonder where he got all of that. He ends with, the little section, his little rant by saying, pay them back with a blessing. I love that. He's going just spe- be the one that's going to speak life. That's going to build up. That's going to encourage. It doesn't matter what they do. You can't control them. 50% of any relationship you're in is a hundred percent you, but we like to pretend like it's all on them. And so he's going, pay them back with a blessing. I mean, can you imagine if that was our default? If that was your posture in your relationship, in your marriage, at your job, with your neighbors, with your friends? I mean, just zoom out. Can you imagine if people, more people in our culture, actually took that posture right now with people that we don't agree with? Can you imagine if that was our posture, the way we raise our kids, and the way that our kids respond to us? Because there's momentum to our choices. and you know this, because how we treat people and the choices we make, that momentum becomes habits, and those habits become patterns in our relationships and in our families, is at the end of the day, for better or for worse, we become what our families like. and loved people, love people. When you you pay someone back with a blessing, when you love someone, you're starting a chain reaction that will ripple forward way beyond that moment, way beyond that one act of love. Because ruptures are gonna happen. Conflict and confrontation are inevitable, but we can actually get better at handling them and healing our relationships when they happen. So I I wanted, before we kind of tie up and you go have more waffles and everybody gets on the trains and the engines and all that stuff i I wanted to give you i think a couple of little little practical some practices that we can just grab onto really quick before we're done when a rupture happens and maybe it'll happen this week maybe it won't happen until next month um, but but just maybe some things to keep in mind to practice number one just know that you don't know like remind yourself like, I'm, I, I can't read their mind. I'm not going to assume their motives. I'm going to actually assume this isn't, this isn't personal. It's not about me. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. There's more to the story than I can see. Uh, like, I'm just, I'm going to know that I don't have all the information. I'm don't, I don't, not living in their head. I have no idea what they were dealing with before they got into this moment. Like, I'm just not going to assume anything about what what's going on with them. You got to just know that you don't know what's happening. Secondly, like look for the lesson. Don't get carried away with the story in your head. There's something for you to see, something for you to learn about you and about them and about relationships and life. Like, because the truth is this, when we actually look for what we can learn, when we look for the lesson, we're way less likely to get offended. It's just like, okay, what can I learn? What, what, what are you telling me? Like what, what information, how can I get back? Like, what am I learning about you and about us and about our family? And finally, make, repair your reflex. You can actually choose, no matter what your family of origin handed to you, to become the person that's gonna initiate every time. I'm gonna pay them back with a blessing. I'm gonna, he- I'm gonna move in to repair this rupture. You don't, don't, don't force and create artificial harmony. Don't sweep it away and just be like, hey, everything's happy, yay. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. No, no, no. You might actually have to have hard conversations just don't sit in the pain actually begin to repair it talk about it pay them back with a blessing because what Peter would say is that's what Jesus has done for us why why would we ever give anybody else no matter how they treat us anything other than a blessing because when we when we completely We're separated from God and made ourselves God's enemy. God just loved us and poured out his grace and poured out his mercy and poured out his blessing on people that had wanted nothing to do with him. And he's going, that's the posture we should take in our relationship. Know that you don't know. Look for the lesson and make repair your reflex. Pay them back with a blessing because that's what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray.